HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, jumping in to tell you about this week's episode of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food roundup. This week, we're introducing you to some amazing women taking a stand. So often, being sexually harassed feels like a loss of control. And so I wanted to have these very tangible guides to say, here's what you can do. Others are pushing for more diversity at major food industry events. I still feel really determined to do you know, whatever I can to help shift that and in a direction that's not just more diverse, but more equitable. We also have a report on that summer business staple, the lemonade stand. The lemonade stand might be the purest form of starting a business. Low overhead, easy to get into, and requires little experience or special equipment. Don't miss Meat and Three, your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening. Hello, and welcome to Cutting the Curd. This is your host, Elena Santagade, and I'm just so happy right now, people. I have a cheese industry luminary here with me in the studio, and also a dear friend. Before I reveal the identity of our guest today, listeners, let's test your Cutting the Curd IQ. Our guest today has been on the show five times. His first appearance in the very first year that Ann Sachs will be launched our show. His cheeses have won over 40 awards, and hint, we're only talking about two different cheeses here. And he himself won the 2017 Slow Cheese Award for his dedication to producing raw milk cheese. Listeners, our mystery guest has even been selected by Martha Stewart herself as a leader of the next generation of American artisans. Accolades aside, I dare you to find a cheesemonger who doesn't agree that today's guest makes two of America's most delicious, dependable, and enduring cheeses. Andy Hatch of Uplands Cheese Company, welcome to Cutting the Curd. <laughs> Thanks, Lena. Thanks for making me blush on air. I love making Andy blush. <laughs> 
Okay, so since I'm hoping that most of our listeners passed that little IQ test and guessed that it was you one or two facts in, I hope, I'm not going to go nuts with the introduction here. Andy is the owner and cheesemaker at Uplands, where he focuses mostly on one cheese, the Beaufort and Conte-inspired Pleasant Ridge Reserve, and at the end of the season, Rush Creek, America's answer to Vacheron Montdor. Uplands is a farmstead operation with a super unique breed of dairy cows and some of the best pasture in Wisconsin. I'm excited to chat more about how things are going at Uplands, but first, I hear you recently went on a sales trip to Australia, and before today's show, I actually looked up our show downloads by city, and we do have some Australian listeners out there, believe it or not. So how would you sum up the current cheese climate down there? Is cheese a sexy, like specialty food, or is it more utilitarian? Like, what's going on? Uh, there's a lot of cheese being sold and, and eaten in Australia, and at uh, a high price. I mean, there's a value placed there hmm. um, on cheese. The, uh, the, the main cities, Melbourne and Sydney, are, are very different. Melbourne has a really strong, deep, long-standing cheese culture. There are you know, permanent kind of bricks-and-mortar markets that have been around for over 100 years, 140 years, and wow. half a dozen, a dozen of these markets around the city, and, and each of the market will have half a dozen cheese stands in them, you know, each selling 70, 80 cheeses. I mean, there's a lot wow. of cheese being sold. There are um, cheese boards uh, on restaurants all over both of those cities. Really? There's a, there's a uh, cheese only, you know, cheese and booze um, restaurant in Melbourne doing like 400 covers a night. Oh my gosh. On, on just cheese. <laughs> I mean, so. That's amazing. It, yeah, there's a lot of cheese being sold. And, and domestically, most of what's being produced is um, kind of industrial scale, but they right. are, uh, there's a strong, um, you know, early stage growth of uh, artisan cheese making there and so i went out i was with uh mateo from jasper hill your buddy but he, you know, he's actually there to carry my bags <laughs> my, <laughs> oh. bag, my bag man no i'm kidding uh we he had his cheddar and i had pleasant ridge so we were there mm-hmm. to visit customers we both sell cheese in australia but we were also um brought over by uh, the australian specialty cheesemakers association to talk to their members about um you know how to grow their farmstead and artisan wow. cheese industry and so normally when when i travel you know you're going to europe and you get kind of a patronizing pack on the right. pat on the back oh, like oh isn't it cute you you know yeah, americans are making really nice growing cheese too. up <laughs> this was is unusual because this was sort of the opposite experience where they're looking at us you know american artisan cheesemakers as um a model they'd like to emulate wow. we're sort of you know i would say maybe 20 20 years ahead wow you know wow. where they are now feels like the late '90s in, mm-hmm. in American cheese making. So that was that was really interesting. Totally. And did that? Uh, how many cheesemakers are, are in that group roughly? Did you get a sense of? Uh, dozens, but not hundreds. Okay. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah. So one question I had, you know, I've always thought that Australia was pretty strict on raw milk cheeses, oh. and um, I knew that they there are some exceptions to their rules there and they had some specific cheeses they were allowing for import like parmigiano um has that loosened up is it did you feel that there's more of a openness to well first on the legality side of selling and making raw milk cheese but also like culturally are people familiar with the difference yeah it culturally it's a um bit of a divisive issue, you know, in a way similar to here. You know, there are pr- hardcore proponents of fluid raw milk, and then there are people who think it's going to be the death of us all. And mm. I mean, that conversation is happening. Uh, legally, uh, you're only allowed to sell raw milk cheese that has been uh, cooked during the cheesemaking process mm. to 
at least 120 degrees so Fahrenheit. The, Fahrenheit. So Pleasant Ridge Reserve gets in. Meets that requirement. Um, and so does, you know, Gruyere, Conte, Reggiano. Right. But cheddars, you know, which aren't cooked to that right. high of a temp, are all pasteurized. And then huh. so there's no soft cheese. The, the one exception, which is a remarkable story, uh, is Roquefort mm-hmm. is allowed in. And that was really the work of Will Studd. Right. He was like a one-man army on that yeah, issue. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible incredible story so you do see uh you know raw milk roquefort but otherwise uh hard cheese and then the rest is uh pasteurized Hmm. so interesting so let's talk about the mongers Hmm. you you said that there's all these uh you know shops that there's a lot of cheese sales happening in australia is the monger culture as passionate and uh reaching a cool factor like it is here no good question and we and we talked a lot about that um we talked about sort of the, the culture amongst cheesemakers. You know, there's a pretty strong sense of like fraternity here in the states right. that doesn't exist there. Hmm. It's uh, you know clicky and, and a little bit divisive. And then you know, what we've gained from that as an industry has been a bi- is a big deal. You know, we're, right. uh, I maybe took for granted ACS and, and what that does for us. And, and their specialty cheesemakers association is not that. Um, organized or mm. yet, uh, and then similarly on the on the cheesemonger side, the uh, there's not a monger culture that's strong. But we we talked a lot about it, and and a couple of mongers there have come over to the states. Mm. Um, Anthony Femias uh, been over quite a few times at CMI. He spent some time at Jasper. He's got right. a, a market stall in Melbourne. Um, there are a few young French mongers who are pretty sharp and, and ambitious, uh, and then. A lot of these uh, market stalls in Melbourne are run by uh, Greek families and Italian oh, families, nice. and it's not a like young, uh, like hip monger right, culture. It's, it's an old family an old thing, but yeah, thing. you've got a lot of those shops have you know um, the owners on the floor, hardworking, and wow. they know product, but it's right. But uh, it's not glorified, or or no. There is a sometimes a precious factor that can happen when you've got your <laughs> really passionate mongers. Uh, but there's, I, I, we, we're gonna try to bring a couple of uh, like exciting young mongers we met. We're gonna try to bring them over. And, awesome. I mean, I, I really want to to help. Um, and there's a model for it there. I mean, they're serious about coffee, and ah, and the barista so thing it it's makes sense off. to them. And huh. of course, their wine industry is uh, right. Big. Pretty developed. I always know. say, like in the U.S., I always think I, I watch the beer, the craft beer culture grow in new cities, and I always think, like, oh, soon they're ready for a cheese shop if there's a few <laughs> good brewers. You know, I, I I see that as like an indicator. The pioneer species. Yeah, you know? yeah, but yeah. maybe Australia. It makes sense that it it could be coffee. Yeah, but I, they they're they're hungry for knowledge. I mean, we we gave a bunch of talks and events and. Uh, sold them out. I mean, people wanted wow. to come out and, and learn about cheese. Wow, that's really interesting. And also, it, going back to what you mentioned about the fact that there are so many restaurants serving cheese boards, that's something that I feel has really sort of fallen by the wayside in a larger scale way in the U.S. Like, we are not, especially here in New York, where we've had iconic restaurants that, that have focused on cheese, and there still are a few, of course. I, I'm surprised that it's not a more regular thing. So it's interesting to hear that. Yeah, it's you know it's pretty strong in Wisconsin where I spend most of my time. Mm-hmm. Um, New York, I, I'm not qualified to say. Yeah. I, but um, it certainly is not uh, growing, is it? 
No, I, I, it doesn't seem it's, like it, um, especially, and maybe my viewpoint is skewed because with the margins in New York City, I think as a, as a just product cost, you're, it's a tricky thing to manage well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah. The wastage and all of that. Uh, they were, they were, it was, it, not to say it wasn't elevated, but it was pretty simple. It was usually in Australia, three cheeses, mm-hmm. oh, you know, white mold. <laughs> this is like a, a Daffinois or something. Right. Um, a hard cheese and a blue cheese. It was, I like that. You know, yeah, they all start had, with the basics, yeah. right? Maybe yeah, put a little and, Pleasant Ridge on there. And they mm. all had them at the end of the meal hmm. bef- ah, before sweets. Interesting. And uh, Wisconsin, what do you do? Before the meal, you think, is more common? Yeah, before, after. Before, during, during after. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> On the yeah. way home. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you'd start, you'd have cheese curds. You'd have fried cheese curds at like four or five appetizer. o'clock. Yeah, with your, a little with snack. Beer. That's yeah. a snack. 2,000 yeah. calorie snack. But, you know, <laughs> that's fine. Um, okay, so I know you've been exporting cheese to Australia for the, fat, the past five years or so. And... What did you expect from that experience? Like that's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty dramatic change from selling locally or to US-based distributors. I'm I'm curious about what you expected going into that and how the past 5 years or so has gone for you. Mm. Um, you know, originally it came about because I knew Will Stud uh and the company to which we sell in Australia, Calendar Cheese, uh, was his company that he started and grew and, and sold a few years ago. Got but, it. So it wasn't you know, so foreign in that way. You right. You know, Will connection. came to our farm to film for cheese slices. Mm-hmm. And, and listeners, if you haven't checked out Will Studd's cheese slices yeah. videos, they're amazing. I, uh, I remember when those DVDs arrived in my mailbox years ago, and I was just so excited. Yeah, I, I came back from Australia with a complete set because oh, why not i mean i'll go back and watch them they're they're Definitely. really well done it's his basically books are well a, done. a visual reference like a visual encyclopedia of major cheese styles yeah yeah and you get to see inside all these french make rooms mm-hmm. that they never let you in know, anyway yeah so uh so will was like you know hey mate let's bring your cheese over and mm-hmm. i was like Mash, okay and, and did that you was respond the, the original in an, in an australian accent yeah right okay good <laughs> right <laughs> and um that was it was pretty similar when we started selling cheese in Neil's yard and it was relationships that were already there and, and and it was a way to just you know do business with friends right um, and uh, now it's become more meaningful as I think sort of a new frontier hmm. to to uh, new place to sell more cheese right right um, I think you know we previously you know I were talking about maybe we'll get into it today the um, you know, tightening up of the American artisan cheese market right. and what it means to try to sell more cheese in the States now, mm-hmm. um, where arguably you know, the production of artisan cheese has outpaced the, uh, our ability to sell it in, in also, the existing outlets. So I see right. it as a new place um, to, right. to sell cheese. And a place where there's a value on it, like you mentioned, that might be different from the U.S. at this point, monetarily at least, just yeah, I mean, the price people are, are willing to pay. People are paying, uh, you got to do some math here, which... Maybe we can challenge Elena with some on-air oh math. Oh, where's my <laughs> cell phone? <laughs> You've got, uh, you know, they're selling a lot, a lot of cheese, 80 to 100, 110, 120 Australian dollars per kilo. So oh. the rough math, you know, 2.2 pounds in a kilo, uh, a, a buck, uh, 28 or 22 yeah. Australian to U.S., 50, 60, yeah. dollars, 50 plus dollars a pound. A pound, wow. Yeah. That's and, amazing. Um, well, and you know, I so they value the totally. cheese, and then everybody's getting there on a boat. The French cheese, mm. the Australian, the uh, you know Italian cheese. So, 
we're um, pr- competitive, right? right. Price wise, whereas Europe, our, our cheese goes on a plane and it's crazy it's, expensive. Yeah, it's, it's never going to be a volume proposition. But I think uh, we can sell a lot of cheese in Australia. That's a that's a really interesting difference, uh, you know, in terms of like how the cheese gets there, determining how it's going to, you know, how competitive you're going to be able to be. We have almost seven dollars a pound in in transportation flying it to Europe. Wow. Just in, yeah, and imports and you know tariffs. Now that that actually, uh, you know, makes me think of like over the past year I've traveled a ton, and uh, it's been really fun. No special reason, just good opportunities to go around. And it's like I've I've been sitting and listening to amazing music at Bacchanal in New Orleans, and I had some Pleasant Ridge Reserve. <laughs> right. I've been in like a dream marketplace in the middle of Stockholm, and I had some Pleasant Ridge Reserve. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. these experiences for me, like running into your cheese around the world, I feel so deeply comforting. And, and especially amidst, especially overseas where you can, you know, everything's unfamiliar. And so I've had a, a real, really fun time seeking especially your cheese out all over the world. And it made me think, you know, in terms of uh, getting into the export market for cheesemakers here in the U.S. who are facing similar challenges, uh, you know, like what advice do you think you would give to small or medium-sized cheesemakers who are having trouble kind of like making that P&L balance with the current climate of domestic sales? Mm. Export market is probably not the easiest lever for them to pull. Yeah, uh, I mean, well, not to, many to do have it, done it. Also, it, right? yeah, I mean, to you, there's got to be a demand for your cheese to begin with, right? Uh, it's I don't. We've always been asked for our cheese, which is a nice way to start a conversation. But totally. then you still have to go over there right. and and talk to people and. and um, that's see an, the market, and so you've got to invest. Investment, in and itself. so if you're a, a you know a small cheesemaker uh, working 19 hours a day and wearing you know eight hats and, right. and to, to fly over is difficult. I right. lucky I have this window in my year where I don't make cheese where I can hmm. get away um, and and do that. So I I don't think export is an easy answer, but it it's a good question, and and, and it's in my mind a lot now. You know how to what does this mean for mid-sized cheesemakers like us looking forward? Because when you do travel and leave home, uh, you know, it makes you re-examine uh, the way you do things at home. So you get to Australia and you say, oh, well, you know, the industry's uh, behaving this way and that way. Well, we're different at home. Why are we different? You know, so you got to right. kind of get out of your pattern. Expands your perspective a little. And uh, so I have, you know, been thinking about it a lot lately. And, of course, traveling with Matteo, he, uh, I think, is a really original thinker when it comes to some of the economic dimension of hmm. cheese making and, hmm. and he has this uh, way he likes to describe the artisan cheese market as sort of a uh, network of pipes <laughs> running <laughs> around the country and we, in, we're producing cheese in these remote rural areas and we're shooting cheese out in these pipelines and right. then sucking cash <laughs> Mnemonic back <tubes>. in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you're huh. really, you know, it's it's a vehicle for bringing money back into um rural america yeah and and, and um, your communities and so you know my thinking about what that looks like going forward you know how we're going to grow that bring more money back into these rural areas uh, i think there's there's cause for concern for these mid-sized producers like us Mm -hmm. you know um last time i was on the show greg and i talked about uh 
you know, consolidation in the industry. And right. I'm not somebody who thinks a large company is inherently worse than a small one. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the consolidation we've seen, um, you know, instance by instance, it's hard to object to, you know. So um, yeah, it doesn't Amazon seem bought Whole Foods. Well, yeah. that, that could be great. You know, right. Kro Kroger bought Murray's. Well, that was a nice exit for Rob. That could work out. You know, Emmy, right. Emmy bought some cheesemakers. Well... You know, there's a lot of integrity in the people still making those cheeses. Yeah, so, the products haven't suffered but, as much as know, we can see. So, you know, I don't want to throw a flag on any one of those uh, transactions, but what I'm worried about is that if this pattern um, continues, uh, that we will end up in a place where there are, um, you know, a smattering of small kind of farmer's market scale producers mm -hmm. uh, you know, operating regionally. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, four or five big conglomerate right. producer companies right. selling through four or five conglomerate distributors right. to four or five conglomerate retailers. Like a monoculture of, of cheese in the end, yeah, in so, a way. And then in between this, you know, Uplands cheese scale, hmm. family scale uh, producer with national distribution all of a sudden starts to feel pretty lonely. Hmm. And, you know, my worries that uh, these larger companies, you know, there's a kind of a, a, a gravitational pull for businesses to do business with other businesses their size. Right. And that, that all of a sudden this lonely territory of a family-scale business could become awkward. Right. You need national distribution to make money. Right, but you, you don't have all the resources to deal with a conglomerate setup in yeah. a way. And or if there starts to get into price wars right. or, um, you know, if marketing becomes a, a big tipping point in driving sales, you can't compete with their marketing. Right. And so, uh, I mean, I have concern about that personally, but I think all of us as an industry ought to take some time and think about what that future um, would look like. Mm, a little because visioning. I, I mean, our natural inclination, mine included, is just to sort of think about your own organism. Right. I'm worried about my sales. Right. I'm worried about my cheese. And then you have the day-to-day -day existence yeah. and, and, so, and how that And that's how we all out. operate. And, and if, if we continue on the path we're on, there's you know, thinking in that way, there's a potential we get to a point where the industry looks like I just described. Mm -hmm. And then we're all looking around like, how do we get how here? How happen? do we get here? Right. Right. Uh, you know, we have very few independent companies. There's less interesting new cheese. Mm. There are less, you know... Um, Markets that can handle that cheese approach. So, and and I have a couple of ideas, especially coming from Australia. Um, I have a couple of thoughts on you know what we can do as an industry to mm. kind of avoid that future. This is where I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm running for office. So and, I have and a three point I'm path really, to I'm prosperity. Really, I'm very <laughs> excited to hear you step onto this soapbox. But first, and this is a great cliffhanger to leave on. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back with Andy Hatch. We're going to hear his. Uh, his vision for the future. Path to prosperity. <laughs> <laughs> Artisan cheesemakers. Num yeah, number it, one, don't make cheese. It starts in Wisconsin. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Uplands Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. 
I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bellavitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. I'm here with BFF of the show and humblest of cheesemaking royalty, Andy Hatch of Uplands Cheese Company. So, Andy, before the, ha- the, before the break, uh, you were about to announce your platform for running for some sort of new office we haven't dis- <laughs> defined yet. Uh, head, head visionary of cheesemaking in the U.S. Cheesar. Cheesar. United States Cheesar. Let's hear it. Uh, this thinking, as, as I said, came out of uh, a trip to Australia. So two weeks whirlwind tour visited, you know, five, six, eight customers, producers a day. And when you, when you go on that kind of trip, you, you get a snapshot of a, an industry. Yeah. It's a real deep dive. And, and, and makes you think about how it's set up structurally. And then of course you look back home and think about how we're set up structurally. And so, uh, it occurred to me that, you know, we need as an industry to invest in the vision of the future that we want. Right. And if, if we continue to simply uh, think only about our own businesses, we might end up in a place uh, we don't like, as mm-hmm. I described, you yeah. know, uh, um, mono, monoculture. Yeah, and I think we've seen other industries, you know, you see that happen, and it feels like a force you can't control, when in reality it might be one that you can. And so I, I came up with... A couple of ideas that, um, you know, could be useful for producers, for distributors, and for retailers to keep in mind when, um, you know, thinking about uh, the vision for the future. And then, so for producers, I think uh, we need to continue to uh, work cooperatively. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. That does not exist in Australia, and I think they are suffering for it. Hmm. Uh, I think... ACS is in a really s- strong place yeah. uh, in general, uh, but uh, it's big and, and national scale and doesn't fit everybody. So I think, you know, regional cheese guilds seem to be doing pretty well and, yeah. and that needs to continue. And um, I think offering each other technical support, especially in regards to food safety, is, is really important. Yeah. And ACS has been good at, really good at that lately. Sarah Spira and right. the you know, Safe Cheese Making Hub. Right. Uh, really that needs to people. continue to happen on a regional and state level so we don't have things mm-hmm. uh, happen like did with Volto. And, right. Um, I also think um, cooperative marketing can be really effective. Mm. Uh, you know, I take uh, i'm from wisconsin we have this the wisconsin milk market board now the dairy farmers yeah, the dairy of wisconsin, farmers of wisconsin new just branding renamed yesterday but all that is 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 farmers pulling their money together to help market themselves and it's an amazing force it's when you think of resource. it because they're they're doing things for you that you know you can't really carve out of your own operations you would never be able to do it on the scale and scope that no, they're doing it that's right yeah yeah and and i also think um so you have certain, you know, trade associations, you have food safety, and, and you have guilds sharing information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I also think we're doing a pretty good job of kind of cooperative marketing events, hmm. uh, CMI, right. counterculture. Uh, is, yeah, it's really growing. You know, g- 
getting producers together who are small scale themselves don't have huge marketing budgets, but they can then present themselves to the public like, look, this this is authentic cheese. Right. We're this doing is, things the real way. Yes, you know, as opposed to uh, chasing big, glossy you know, marketing campaigns that none of us can afford. So, I, right, and the right. producer end, I, I think we're doing a lot of things right. And Wisconsin has got a lot more of those resources than other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, I also have liked that with counterculture specifically, they're going to cities that aren't, you know, the low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Like New mm-hmm. York City, cheesemongers gathering together is pretty easy to make that happen. But in in places farther afield, you know, I think they have one coming up in Buffalo. Um, you know, I think it's really... In Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Uh, and that's a handy segue maybe to, to what I think retailers can be thinking about, and which is the second idea mm-hmm. here. And And... The most important thing retailers can do in in general is is, uh, grow the market for artisan cheese. Mm. That's obvious and easy to say, but what are we, 370 million people in this country? There are a lot of people buying a lot of cheese. cheese And and I think that we need to concentrate on converting people from, you know, buying industrial cheese to buying artisan cheese. It's really that education piece that's necessary. Right, so all of these kind of mid-sized companies that that need... to grow their sales, um, rather than duke it out with each other mm-hmm. for the existing customers, we need to, you know, find more customers right. and bring people over from crap cheese totally to to good cheese. And so, uh, easier said than done. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody probably agrees the big frontier there is is selling cheese online. And and everybody's right. thinking about it. Nobody's really nobody's figured it really, out. Yeah, nobody has like. Right done a slam dunk there which is really interesting and and it may not happen you know it may be that people buying fine cheese want to be able to smell it taste it touch it Mm -hmm. but if and when it does happen um i hope that um you know the the retailers doing it will be able to leverage all those you know efficiencies and convenience for small producers and not simply not simply to continue to drive the price down and the expectation of price right um, so on, on the retail end, uh, hmm. I'd like to see more of that. And then finally, for distributors I have, can play their part too uh, hmm. in, in logistics. Yeah. I mean, it's a real challenge moving small quantities of cheese around the country. And that was stark in Australia. Big, it's a big, hot country. Right. And um, moving cheese around is not easy. And Again, there was a little bit of a, a lack of uh, trust and cohesion there. A lot mm. of small producers didn't trust distributors, and they were, you know, suspicious of each other. Um, and, and I can't talk about the reasons for that. I mean, I'm not a part of that that scene. But it made me think, you know, hear about how difficult it can be for a small producer to, to get his or her cheese out around the country. And so, totally. Um, those we need to find efficient ways to do that for these small producers to get access to new markets, and there are, you know, some solutions that seem to work around the country. Provisions pulling out of Vermont sounds right. like they do a, a pretty nice yeah. job. Yeah, I think they do. We've been doing a, a, a fair amount of um, kind of small scale con- consolidation in Wisconsin. We mm-hmm. have neighboring cheesemakers; they'll bring their cheese um, to our place, to our farm, mm-hmm. to plop onto the Murray's pallet. The That's sax, great. The, palette, yeah. the cowgirl palette. Because if they're already coming to you, or if you're already That's shipping right. cheese to them, then you have one one of those pneumatic tubes is already going to your door. Let's fill it. So that yeah, fill that tube as as big as you can. Right. And then suddenly you've helped people yeah. scale. And 
you know, we, we, we talk about the, the consolidation that's happening amongst retailers. We talk about the consolidation that's, that's happening amongst uh, producers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's happening with distributors, too. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the worry there is that as those distributors um, get larger, they're going to be less... Less inclined to go that extra... Or just like I said, mile. you know, businesses are sort of gravitate to other businesses of the same size. Right. These hu- huge distributors, are they going to be able to work with um, right. the tiny producer? And right. so uh, we need to find some models to, to make that work. Hmm. Um, now, you s- it doesn't sound like Australia was a model for that. Do you think that there there are models for that that... Maybe in, even not in cheese, maybe in other industries where they've figured it out a little better in terms of connecting the dots. I'm not smart <laughs> on that. You know, I, I don't know. Coffee cooperatives come to yeah, mind. I wonder I, how that's they certainly, do it. I mean, talking about a, a, a pipeline for bringing money back to poor areas, that doesn't seem to be working. Right. No. They, they don't get enough money, the producers. But uh, they, I don't know. Yeah, it'd be interesting to, uh, this is like sparking a little research project for me to think about like other industries that are consolidating logistically better to bring in small producers mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. and where we could learn from something farther afield, maybe something that's not so obvious, maybe not even a food item. Listeners, if anybody has any ideas, please email me cutting the curd at heritage radio network.org or you can tweet us. <laughs> Don't tweet me. Don't tweet Andy. He's going to be too busy. <laughs> You're not on Twitter, Andy? Not yet. What, no. what, well, what with this platform, I think yeah, when you, I form, this may when be I the launch of announce, your... <laughs> that's right, my 2020 candidacy. <laughs> for, for Cheese Star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is... Is that... Uh, would you say that that sums up your this vision for the future of what we need to work on? Yeah, and to be clear, this vision is was written... Um, you know, while eating an egg sandwich at Foster Sundry this morning. I mean, delicious. I, uh, yeah, I, I think producers need to continue to work cooperatively, take advantage of, of uh, the resources and share resources, especially in regards right. to food safety, especially in regards to distribution, and not think only about ourselves or, or you know. Right. I think uh, retailers uh, need to try to convert more customers from industrial cheese to, to good cheese yeah, and grow the market for all of us. And I, I think distributors need to um, get better at um, moving cheese around the country from small producers and, mm. and helping them grow markets in, in that way. Yeah, and, you know, with each of these points, I feel like there's just a win-win for everybody. On each side of of the equation here, sell, we're winning. Sell... Uh, Less boring cheese, sell more good cheese. Yeah, grow grow the market for all of us. Everybody will, you know, some people respond to, do, you know, dollars. Well, this is a way to make more of them, so let's do it, you know. I, I think that this is really exciting, actually. I didn't, I wasn't prepared for such an amazing platform, although I should have been, because I know that you're thinking about this stuff all the time, and your perspective is so unique. Um, but I feel like listeners... We have some work to do. This is thoughtful work that anybody interested in the cheese industry uh, plays a part in, in a real way. So I really like the charge and the vision you're giving to us here, Andy. Well, I, I'm about to go home and start calving and cheese making and go back to my own little silo <laughs> go into the tunnel. of thought. So you caught me at, at the, you know, <laughs> the end of the brainstorming season. But there are um, other people smarter than me 
mm-hmm. when thinking about these issues. We just need to keep, um, you know, talking, keep talking and, about and, it, yeah. and working on it, and really holding each other accountable. I think that's a big piece too. Um, wow, I feel so inspired. I, uh, you know, what I could talk to you for hours here, but I feel like that was such a rich chunk of information that I'm going to let our listeners sort of munch on that hunk of cheese for a while. I'm going to go munch on a slice of <laughs> Roberta's pizza. <laughs> I don't know how this analogy, how well I did there, but Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah. This was a real Thanks real for having me. I'm so happy to see you uh, behind the mic here. I think you're a great fit for a great show. Oh, geez. Now you're making me blush. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So listeners, thank you for listening. And uh, if by some chance you haven't had Pleasant Ridge Reserve yet, well, I hope you're listening to this on the way to the cheese shop. Um, I'm Elena Santigade, and we'll be back next week with more Cutting the Curd. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Oh, I've been so rude. Oh, I've been rude. I've